Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 187. This week we talk with Clayton Hunt and John Calloway about practical test-driven development, why you shouldn't use a GET request for your garage door, and we talk about everything from Gherkin Syntax to ZomboCom. Welcome to ZomboCom. This is ZomboCom. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at raygun.com. This week we have John Calloway, a Microsoft MVP, focusing primarily on web technologies and has experience with everything from PHP to C Sharp to ReactJS to SignalR, clean code and professionalism are particularly important to him, as well as mentoring and teaching others what he has learned along the way. And we also have Clayton Hunt, and he focuses on software craftsmanship and is a signatory of both the Agile Manifesto and the Software Craftsmanship Manifesto. He believes that through short iterations and careful gathering of requirements that we can deliver the highest quality and the most value in the shortest time. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Mm -hmm. And uh, Carl, what do we have for the comment of the week? Uh, This week, the comment of the week came to us off of Twitter. It's Sung Kim. Mm -hmm. And he said, great introduction to Docker and Kubernetes on uh, the MS Dev show with Rita Zhang. Mm -hmm. Uh, He wasn't sure where Kubernetes fit in, but Rita explained it in very simple terms and made the concepts easier to understand. Yep. Yeah, you know, that's that's what's really cool about the show is, like, if we can... And whenever we get these comments, like just even with one person, like they just didn't understand how these things worked and what the relationship was. And they listened to the episode and now they do. That is so cool. I mean, that is just that's really cool thinking about, you know, all of the people that that we've sort of pushed forward and and are going to build. You know, this guy's going to go on to build something like really cool that, you know, we're going to end up using in our lives. Yeah. And if you want to get mentioned on the show like song, send an email to feedback at msdevshow.com, comment on Facebook, YouTube, or Stitcher. And we especially love those five-star iTunes reviews. Yes, we do. Okay, so let's jump into the news. So the first one here, uh, hard drive stats for Q1 2018. So this is from Backblaze, who I actually use. And every quarter they put out these stats. I don't know if there's Anything you wanted to call out here, Carl? So do you want to uh, just uh, mention what Backblaze does so we get a little bit more context? Yeah, well, they do a couple of things. But one of the, the, you know, kind of the core of what they do is they figured out how to make storage uh, basically as low overhead as possible. So they, they made it dirt cheap from their standpoint, cramming as many hard drives into a server as they possibly could. Um, and then they offer unlimited storage for I think it's like five or six bucks a month um, or you can pay like on an annual basis. And I'm backing up, uh, I think, three terabytes of data now, two or three terabytes of data uh, with them. So basically, it's a it's a, a backup service. And they actually, like their whole interface, is it's very well done because they they try not to take up like your entire upload and they will like throttle it back if you're if you're using your upload and, and things like that. So they, they just do a great job doing backup. So they so, obviously have a ton of hard drives. Yeah, so needless to say, they're hard drive experts. Yes. And uh, they obviously monitor their hard drives, which comes to this blog post article, uh, which I think is really interesting, kind of like for two aspects. One, um, like when you look at all of the hard drives together, it's like a 1.2% annual failure rate, yep. which is which is just showing like, like hard drives are becoming just more and more 
just robust throughout the years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know when we worked together in a, in a previous company, uh, we would get hard drives in and, and run spin rate on them. And I think there was something like a, like a 20 or 30% failout rate just from running spin rate on them for a day. Yeah. And seeing that, and seeing that these have a, like a 1% failout rate for a year, that's a, you know, quite a bit of improvement. Yeah. And we actually, um, that's actually kind of an interesting backstory too, because we were using SSDs and we were using the SSDs that had that bug that after a certain amount of runtime would have, um, would just like shut down and that was causing some issues. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, I mean, it's a really low percentage. I mean, what I always get out of this is, you know, if you look at this, I actually stopped buying Seagate drives because they had these four terabyte Seagate drives where they were having, uh, well, here it says 2.3% failure rate. I think they had a higher historical fail. Actually, if I go back, Oh, here we go. So from the whole period, um, actually had some Western digitals with a 10% failure rate, um, and then they had some Seagates, uh, I'm not seeing the, the Seagate, but in, in any case, I had looked at their data and said, when I'm not touching Seagates, um, which is kind of funny because the Seagates now are actually getting super reliable. Like if you look at their 10 terabyte drives, they have 1,220, um, and they've had zero drive failures. Um, and also based on their previous numbers, their HGST drives, uh, were super reliable, um, I think I have the four terabyte ones. They have 15,000 of those um, and they've had 16 failures. So they are at a 0.43% annualized failure rate. So, I mean, th- these hard drive manufacturers need to like take notice because people like me are, are purchasing drives based on this data. Cause I, I don't, you know, I, I am using it in a storage spaces array so I can tolerate some failure, but uh, I certainly don't want failure because it's not fun because then I got to buy another one. Yeah. And, and it, the other thing that I really wanted to mention is like going back year to year, it, it's not always the same companies that are, are doing better or worse. Yep. They kind of just seem to like rotate through. So it's not like, well, Seagate sucked this year. I'm not going to buy them forever. You, you do kind of have to like look at what they're currently doing because they're constantly improving. Yeah, don't hold a grudge. Like Seagate, 10 terabyte drives, failure rate 0.47. Uh, 12 terabyte drives, 1.09. Like there's, you know, there's a big difference there. Man, Western Digital is just terrible. They used to be good too. Or at least maybe I just thought they were good. I don't know. Um, Toshiba, let's see here. HG, yeah, HGS, HGST, from what I've seen here, I mean, they, they are just, um, um, they're, they're, it's, they're, they never have like the best model. But they always seem to be um, overall mostly reliable. But again, don't hold a grudge and don't also assume that they're not going to make a whole bunch of bad drives for a while. So just keep uh, keep monitoring this every time they release it. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, and then the next story here, um, this is why Git requests should be item potent. Yeah, there's a, a guy put on Twitter a story. I'm just going to read it really quick because it's not too long. It says, you know how HTTP GET requests are meant to be item potent? Well, I have a story for you. A while back, I added a Wi-Fi control to our garage doors with these Wemos D1s. The Wemos expose a web page with a link that says toggle. The endpoint for the link activates a relay, which is hooked up to the push button on the garage door, which makes the, the door go up and down. Uh, the toggle endpoint responds to get requests. I threw the code together in minutes and was too lazy to spend another couple minutes figuring out post. Uh, hashtag regret. Uh, Safari finally figured out I was using toggle page regularly, so I added it to my favorites, which are iCloud synced between all of my devices. So every time I opened a new tab on my laptop, desktop, iPhone, iPad, the garage door opened or closed. 
late at night, early in the morning, or randomly throughout the day. <laughs> this kids is why get requests should be item potent. Yeah. At first I was like, you know, why are they, why do they have a toggle? Like it was funny. I was kind of hung up on that, but then I realized that it's because the garage door button is, you know, the button's already a toggle. So like it, it is what it is already. And I yeah, hate and that, to, that way yeah. they don't have to have sensors for state. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the, the, it, it really reminds me of like my remote, like I have a Logitech Harmony remote and, uh, my TV has a, um, um, it actually has IR commands for on and off, and my stereo only has a toggle for the power. So anytime anything gets screwed up, of course, it's the stereo being in the wrong state. So, like, toggle is just, I would say, evil by itself. Uh, but, yeah, if you are going to be modifying state through a get request, um, then that's evil as well. Um, anything else we want to say on that? I just thought that that was kind of amusing, and that's I, something that hopefully will remind people that that's not a good way to use that. <laughs> Perfect. Well, let's let's get to our guests because uh, we're going to be talking about uh, about unit testing. And, um, you know, I think this is kind of an interesting topic because this is something that, you know, I started unit testing back in. I don't I don't even know. Like, I'm I'm curious, like when it kind of came first came to dot net because I was using N unit back in. I want to say like 2003, uh, maybe maybe even 2002. So, you know, kind of shortly after dot uh, net itself came out. So I guess the first thing, guys, that I that I wanted to ask and kind of understand, uh, you know, kind of overall is like, what, what is the state of testing these days? Like, is it, is it a lot different than it was back in, you know, 2003, whenever I was doing it? Well, I, I came to testing fairly late in my career. Uh, I spent many, many years ignoring it, avoiding it and, and really just not understanding the, the, the point, not understanding the process. Um, so I, I've only been really, uh, involved heavily in unit testing, uh, maybe five or six years now. Um, and, and since then, I would say that the, the premise hasn't changed, but the tooling and uh, the documentation has improved significantly. And it seems like it's uh, becoming a little bit more pervasive through the industry. I've worked a, a couple of different uh, jobs, a, a couple of different projects where uh, unit testing and test-driven development were just the way development was done. And that's, that's certainly a, a difference from just a few years ago. Yeah, that that seems like a huge difference. I mean, I remember it would have been probably in the 2008-2009 time frame I was at a I was at a job where I was trying to convince my boss that unit testing was a good idea, which in hindsight was the the worst thing that I could be doing. And uh, not the unit testing itself. I I can explain that. Uh but anyway, like from from his perspective, he's just like he's like no, no, like this is don't do this. This is, this is terrible. Like, I don't want you spending time on this. Um, so it's, it's great. And we can kind of dive into like why that was a completely wrong approach, but, uh, you know, I, it, that's great to hear that. Like actually some teams now as some employers are, you know, you can kind of come in and, and actually be, be among friends. So what's your overall approach to unit testing? What does that look like? Uh, we typically go with a, uh, more of a, a BDD style approach. So we try to get the requirements from the business, whether it's a business analyst or a product owner. And then once we have those, we base the testing off of what the user needs. Uh, at some point, we, we will do uh, what I typically refer to as developer tests, where um, it's, I know that this method needs to do this thing in this circumstance, but we try to focus on uh, what the user needs. That way, um, 
focusing on that higher level allows for the system to be a bit more flexible. You can you can refactor the system and not have to change your tests because the overall premise of the test that you wrote uh, isn't changing just the code that's supporting it. So so what what does that look like in code? Like, do you have separate you know business unit tests and you know function unit tests? You know, how is that organized or laid out? You know, how, how do we, you know, figure out how to know when to do when, which when? Um, I don't generally separate them, separate them. Uh, I will keep the tests that are directly related to the methods in a class, like specifically for that class. I will keep them in a uh, folder generally named after the class in my test project. And then the business tests are either in a folder surrounding that or... Uh, I have experimented with having a set of uh, specifically business cases uh, in their own folders. So like maybe a, a context folder. So uh, that'd be like you're given. So uh, given a new user and then that, that folder might have stuff that will help set up a user and maybe tests around what a new user is. And then inside that folder, uh, dig deeper and have um, other context-based stuff that might be supported by having a new user and then in another folder outside of the the given folder uh, maybe have some kind of condition um, are you guys familiar with the gherkin syntax given when then no okay so the way that i try to convince my um, business analysts and product owners to provide acceptance criteria is in the form of a given when then statement mm -hmm. so um <clears throat> Given a logged on user when uh, purchasing an item, then, well, they're hard to come up with on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, it's basically you have the given, which is, represents the context of the test or of the, of the requirement, really. Uh, the when, which is the action that the user is taking. And the then, which is the result that's expected when that action is taken in that context. All right, um, so I, I'm I'm looking this up on on some uh, on behat.org, and we've got some gherkin, <laughs> some gherkin syntax. I like one; they've got one for coffee. It says feature serve coffee scenario buy last coffee. Given that there are one coffee left in the machine, and I have deposited one dollar, when I press the coffee button, then I should be served a coffee. Right, and that's that's exactly the kind of test that I would prefer, or the kind of requirement that I would prefer to write my test against. Uh, if you can get the business to deliver requirements in that fashion, so I normally have a user story, your typical as a role, I want feature, so that reason. Uh, and then that is supported by uh, a few of the uh, the Gherkin statements, scenarios with given when thens. Uh, the, the code and the, the unit test almost write themselves. That is, yeah, that's really interesting. So, yeah, this is, you know, I've heard about this um you know, doing, doing unit tests like this or doing tests like this, I guess we're calling them like business tests or, or whatever we want to call them. But, um, this is kind of interesting because like back when, when I was doing, uh, when I was, you know, like I was a huge proponent of, of unit testing. And from my perspective, it was always like, here is the, here is the investment that I'm making in, in unit tests and here's the payback. And from my perspective, it was always like the lower level, uh, the lower level functions that, that I could test, they had like this massive payback. And, and actually the first, like my, the first time that I really used uh, unit testing was um, I had this, um, 
I was converting an application from VB6 over to .NET, and uh, there was a function in there that somebody had written that would take in a string, and that string would say, like, now minus five days, and it had to convert that into, you know, what is what does that actually mean? What You know, what is the actual timestamp that that uh, corresponds to? And, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting because I, I, I um, you know, I, I first converted it over, and, and then I started writing these unit tests, and then I realized that the, the actual... The original code that that I was converting actually had tons and tons of bugs in it that I found. I found all the edge cases that it didn't support. Um, And then I was able to test all these different permutations and modify my code. And uh, eventually, like I was I was pretty confident that it was uh, uh, hardened. And I would say overall, like there was less development time. You know, the, the, the whole ROI that I got from that was insanely high. And that's when I really started talking to other people like, hey, guys, like this is this is significant. If you do this, um, you can develop things faster um, and your code will be so much better. So this is kind of this is interesting that you guys kind of, you know, take it from the from the other side of this. I mean, do you. Do you see as big of a return on investment when you're when you're writing this type of test? Uh, I I feel like we do because it it focuses in on specifically what it is that the business wants. So uh, and we don't get me wrong, we do write the tests that you were that you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, those are those are what I call developer tests. Like the developer has an algorithm and they know that it needs to to behave in a certain way, but there's no actual supporting business requirements to deliver the algorithm. So the developer writes the test to, to fit the algorithm. Um, but writing the test based off of the off of the Gherkin scenarios, I feel allows the developer to focus in on, on the big picture that the business cares about and yeah. deliver that business value as fast as possible because we're not we're not worried about all the, the, the little details unless the business is. We're just if I meet these scenarios, then I know that the business will be happy. And uh, certainly you want to look for edge cases and you want to consider what could go wrong. And and I would even say discuss that with the business and inform them of those things. And then they can do their cost benefit analysis and and hopefully they decide that they want to cover those edge cases. But it's possible, depending on the market situation, that they may want to just write those down as things to do in the future and skip them for now. Yeah, but it seems like. You know, so the, let's take this coffee example where we're, you know, we're buying the last coffee here. Like at, at the low levels, you know, it, it's funny because like I've seen I've seen so many different vulnerabilities come out in in various pieces of software or you're calling an API and or there's like this whole Facebook fiasco where it's like, you know, if you were a developer, like the second you look at that API, you realize that you have like access to everything, which which seems pretty, pretty crazy. You know, so like at a certain level, it's it seems you, you sort of have this insight into vulnerabilities. And when you're when you're at a certain level of code. So in this case, um, you know, you're working with money, for example, and there's probably a lot of functions in there where, you know, if you end up with um, uh, certain dollar amounts or things like that, you could, you know, get free coffee. Um, or, or manipulate the machine in some way. I mean, imagine if this was like a voting machine. Um, you know, if your voting machine spec, and, and, and I'm just trying to understand kind of your approach here, but in, in your, if, if I was writing a spec for a voting machine, right, I would say, um, you know, uh, given, I don't know, I, I'm not good at writing these things, but basically when I vote for this person, like the vote tally goes up, right? Um, and, and if I deliver that, um, I mean, there's there are voting machines out there that are written like that, um, but people have found that they can. There's different ways to hack them. 
And and it's not like you can't write a spec for, you know, make this, you know, when when person attempts to hack machine don't allow it, <laughs> right? So like am I totally off base here? Like what is your what is your thinking around that? Well, I I feel like so certainly it might be a difficult thing to write, but if if the program is capable of detecting that someone is is trying to hack the voting machine, right? Like if it's, if it's something that you can program a fix for, Mm-hmm. then there's probably a way to to write the requirement. And that may not be a requirement written by the business person because they may not understand that. Yeah. That might be where uh, some of the communication in Agile comes in, yeah. where the developer goes, all right, I've been paying attention to security concerns, and I know that this system can be hacked in this way, so uh, we need a spec specifically for this situation to prevent uh, things, bad things from happening. Uh, but also... It could just be that part of the developer's algorithm for achieving the overall goal of incrementing the vote uh, includes the ability to prevent uh, hacks. Yeah. And that's that's when the developer tests come in. Like, all the business asked for was that when somebody votes, the vote count goes up. Yeah. But the developer knows there's a security concern, so as part of their algorithm for making the vote count go up, they are also covering this edge case, and you would write a test for it. Okay. Um, those tests are more specific to the implementation, whereas the business tests, because the business, they care about results, not necessarily about how it happens. Yeah. Whereas the developers, we care, we care about how it happens because we care about those consur- uh, security concerns and, and whatnot. So we write the developer test to make sure that everything is happening in a good way. And we write the business tests in order to make sure that we are achieving the business goals. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so if the anti-hack is a business goal, then there should probably be a business uh, story or use case for it. But it's not always a business goal. It could just be part of being a good developer. Okay. Because because that's that's kind of what I was getting. At. I, let me kind of repeat this back to you because this is this is kind of what's in my head, and I think you've I think you've explained it pretty well. But so I'm let's say I'm I'm writing this function that says, um, you know, I have two function or two methods in a class, and I have like you know, record vote. And then I have another one, which me, which says, you know, void vote, right? Like I want to, I want to can't or cancel. Let's keep it simple. And we'll say cancel vote. And, you know, my, my first pass at that cancel vote, I could just say like, you know, vote minus minus, (laughs) which would be horrible. But, you know, that's why that's one of the reasons why we're writing unit tests, right? Like we, from my perspective, I would want to write a unit test that says like, Hey, if the vote count is zero and I say cancel vote, like it should stay zero. Whereas, you know, if, if that code is written poorly, maybe it like loops around and all of a sudden somebody has 16 million votes. Um, so if I'm understanding you correctly, you would put both into place, right? You'd have a, you'd have a developer unit test that covers that situation. Um, it really covers like all those edge situations for that particular piece of code. And then you would also have the business, uh, specifications that, that ensure that the high level functionality is working as intended. Did I get that correct? Uh, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. And, and I mean, you know, the, the situations are, are not normally quite that straightforward, right? So right. you may write the code uh, in kind of a naive way to meet the business requirements. And then two days after it's in production, somebody realizes there's an issue. Well, the issue doesn't mean that the business requirements were wrong. It just means that you need um, extra edge case requirements or at least tests to prevent whatever the issue was from happening. So you can extend the testing system by adding in those tests that will reproduce and prove that the the issue is no longer there. 
and the business use case should still pass because yeah. it's at a higher level. Ah, yeah, okay, I, that's great. That's a great point. Yeah, and I, I work with a lot of um, small and medium-sized businesses and clients where they don't always have the, the time or resources to, to hire a BA or, or to do proper requirements gathering. So it oftentimes my requirements start with a, we need to be able to record votes. Oh, okay, let's re- record a vote. Uh, we also need to be able to validate that as a, as a second thought, you know, maybe a day later, um, like, oh yeah, we shouldn't record a vote if it's not valid. And what does not valid mean? And so we, those requirements kind of grow and, and become more complex as, as we digest them, as we understand them, as we work with the business. Um, and therefore our test suite becomes uh, more comprehensive and then our application grows, uh, to, uh, to satisfy all those test cases that we put in. Very cool. Thank you. You know, one thing we didn't mention was kind of how you guys ended up here and you guys have actually written an entire book on this. So, you know, this podcast will be like uh, 1% of 1% of of what's actually in that book. So uh, I am curious, like um, overall, I mean, it's a it's a pretty large book. So, you know, you want to give me kind of a summary of of what is covered in the book? Sure. Uh, Yeah, the the book is titled Practical Test Driven Development Using C Sharp 7 Subtitle, Subtitle JavaScript. (laughs) Um, the, 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 about half of the book is devoted to, to C sharp and the other half to JavaScript with examples in react, Mm -hmm. uh, because we're, we're both web developers by trade. And, and these days you, you have to know some kind of JavaScript framework if you're doing any web development at all. And so we, we took a real world example project and kind of went end to end with it, uh, throughout the book and really kind of made it so that anyone can pick up. Uh, with either some background in C sharp or some background in JavaScript and not feel lost along the way. Okay. So is there, you know, it's interesting that uh, you're covering both C sharp and JavaScript examples. I know it's been a while since I've done, um, you know, kind of full end uh, web development and unit testing in each, but is how big of a difference is there is unit testing in C sharp versus JavaScript? I would say the, the, they're similar. Of course, there are semicolons in in each language. Um, <laughs> the The tooling is is obviously a little bit different. Um, everybody has their own preferred IDE uh, and and whatever plugins that they might use. Um, if I'm doing C sharp development, I'll be using Visual Studio 2017 with InCrunch so that I can continually run my unit test suite. Uh, if I'm doing web development to, with React, then I'll, I'll use um, WebStorm. And then just run uh, my test suite in in Jest. I know Clayton has some uh, other tools and, and preferences. Yeah, even even though the book is using React uh, for work purposes, I'm doing Angular, and for Angular, we're just using um, VS Code uh, with uh, Karma as a test runner and Jasmine as the testing uh, library. Okay. Um, yeah, pretty much that... all of the JavaScript testing libraries have have basically the same interface. It's a very uh, behavior-driven development interface for testing. It's always uh, describe some feature, uh, it, and then the it is kind of the start of your test. So this feature does something is basically what you're saying. Yeah, and we both have some experience introducing test-driven development to our our respective teams. Um, so we we both kind of start with um, test to help somebody get going and get familiar with the the whole process. So we might test that a class exists, or we might test that a method exists, then we might 
tie the, the first several tests directly to the implementation of the code that we're trying to write. Um, but as we progress and, and as the people that we're working with are progressing and, and understanding a little bit more, that's when we start to introduce the behavior-driven uh, naming conventions and, and testing style so that we're really focusing on ensuring that the behavior of the system is correct, not that the function or method is is uh, doing the implementation. I think that's pretty interesting. I've never, you know, I've done unit testing in the past, but I've never tested if, if like a, a class or a method exists. I've always assume that it exists as part of it. I guess how, how, you know, as a learning step, since I've never thought to doing that, like how important is it to even like kind of do something like that as you're learning on adding this new tool to your belt? It seems to, to really help the, uh, the developers that are brand new to testing. Um, a lot of times when you're trying to write tests for the first time, the big stumbling block is, well, what kind of test do I write? And when you can't think of any kind of test to write, you write the test that's going to make you write the code that you want to write. And typically, the first code that you want to write is, is a new class or a new method. So simply asserting that that method exists or that class exists is a, a pretty good jump start to getting somebody into testing. Uh, but uh, as you said, it's certainly not needed. And if it wasn't for the fact that most teams are constantly bringing new people on or uh, replacing people, you could probably transition off of doing that. But I, I do find that uh, with the uh, constant changing of employees and developers that uh, continuing to make it a practice to do those it exists tests uh, really helps with the uh, transitions. I see. So it's more of a, a learning tool for somebody who just has no experience with testing. That's a pretty cool way to think about it. Yeah, because if, you, if you've, you know, anytime you start something new, there's a certain level of, of anxiety. Uh, you know, we're we're paid to be the ones that know the answers. We're paid to be the ones that know how to do the implementation. Uh, so if we're introducing test-driven development to someone that that has no experience with it, it, it can be, you know, kind of nerve-wracking. So we want to show them success early on, and and that can be as simple as you've written a test to check that this class exists. It doesn't yet. Now you implement or create that class. Now it does exist. Now your test is passing. You've just written your first successful unit test. Ship it. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Reagan provides full stack error, crash, and performance monitoring for tech teams. Whether you're a software engineer looking to diagnose and resolve issues with greater speed and accuracy, a product manager drowning in bug reports, or you're just concerned you're losing customers to poor quality online experiences, Raygun can provide you with the answers. Get full stack error and performance monitoring in one place. The next time you're struggling to replicate errors and performance issues in your code base, think Raygun. Head over to raygun.com. Get up and running within minutes and dramatically improve the online experiences of your users. You know, I, I have to listen. I, I listen to um, Accidental Tech Podcast occasionally and Marco Armand, uh, he's the he's the author of Overcast and that's the, the podcast uh, listener that I use. And uh, on the podcast, on his podcast, this is confusing now because he's a podcaster who writes a podcast app. But in the podcast app that he writes, and he's very, he's very vocal about not writing any tests at whatsoever. And uh, they're always trying to convince him that he should be doing unit testing. And he does have some bugs. I mean, it crashes in some, some edge cases. But for the most part, it's pretty reliable. You know, is there some way that we can convince him that he should be testing without, you know, sounding like a jerk? 
Oh, well, that's kind of a fun one. Um, <laughs> and, and to be to be clear, um, testing does not mean that you won't have bugs. Uh, you know, you, you can only test the things that you can think about to plan for. And since we're not perfect, we're going to miss some stuff. Um, but as far as uh, my belief on writing unit tests, uh, one, I believe they should be written before the code. Uh, and that's more of a, uh, a thing where if you don't write them before the code, you will be less inclined to cover all of the use cases after you've written the code. Uh, but the second one is that if, you, if you're not testing your code automatically, then you have to be testing it manually or potentially, in his case, um, everyone that uses his code is testing it manually. Um, so I, I prefer automatic testing because I'm lazy. I, maybe he's not as lazy as I am. Yeah, and and TDD is is a, a personal discipline. So, you know, the fact that that Clayton and I both find it it extremely useful and and helpful is really just because we've spent the time to to practice and to become accustomed to it and and uh, have become uh, much more. Uh, we've we've become quicker developers as a result and and feel that we're delivering higher quality code than without it. Um, so, you know, if if he's not had the same experience, then then there's really no reason for him to change. Um, with that said, there are certain uh, benefits to having a comprehensive suite of unit tests. Um, you know, introducing regression bugs is severely uh, limited as a result if you have a, a fairly comprehensive suite of unit tests. And uh, when you're doing some refactoring, you can be fairly confident that you haven't introduced new bugs because... Uh, the the requirements as you understand them have been written it, into the system with your suite of unit tests. So, you guys are both web developers, and um, over the like the last five to ten years, the complexity of mo modern full stack web applications have has just went up several levels. How has this affected how unit testing is done? I'd I'd say it's definitely made um, it's made some things easier. And it's made some things much harder. Um, so specifically, we work uh, with C Sharp, uh, .NET, and then some JavaScript framework. JavaScript, everything as far as testing goes, I believe is getting easier. Even even in like Angular, where I'm where I'm doing uh, TypeScript, and there's some limitations there. The the testing is generally getting easier. The tools are getting better. And just from a raw point of the code that you have to write to be able to test with the new class syntax, that's that's actually getting a lot easier too. In C Sharp, um, with the .NET Core uh, framework, they have added interfaces for a bunch of things, which being able to abstract dependencies is, is like the number one thing that you need to be able to do in order to write a test for something. So that helps. However, um, some of those interfaces aren't abstracted very well. So even though they're there, you still have to, if you want to test around that thing, you still have to create your own interface as an abstraction, which uh, makes things a little bit harder. And there's some other libraries that um, make testing kind of difficult because they just don't, they don't follow patterns that allow you to abstract properly. Uh, on the whole, though, I, th I think it's getting easier. So... It have there been any innovations in unit testing that have really helped out or has it just been a nice slow incremental, you know, ease into, you know, or ma making it easier to write unit tests? 
for me, the the most impactful things that have happened is the ability to watch your tests. So, and this is now in in all the platforms. Um, so the first time that I that I figured out how to do that, it was with a uh, a plugin for Visual Studio called InCrunch, uh, and it will basically anytime you stop typing, it will recompile your code and rerun your tests for you, which is amazing. Yeah, I, I can't That's imagine. I, I still, yeah, I still use it. I I, I can't imagine. Even even with the um, the way ReSharper handles that same concept and the way that uh, Visual Studio Ultimate handles that same concept, I still much prefer InCrunch uh, because the other two both require that you save the file, whereas InCrunch just runs. All I have to do is stop typing. Mm-hmm. Um, the same thing is now available using the watch capability in .NET Core, and most of the JavaScript frameworks for testing now have some form of watch that is available. So I live recompile all of my code and and I will be running the application, running the tests and coding at the same time. And all I have to do is stop typing, potentially save the file and my application refreshes, my tests rerun and I get instant feedback as to whether the code that I just wrote works or doesn't work. It's, um, it's, it's pretty amazing nowadays. That is pretty awesome. And then speaking of tools, like one thing that I was thinking of, because I, I, again, I was I was huge into unit testing back in like 2010, and I, I couldn't remember the name of what it was, but have you guys ever heard of pecs and moles? Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. So I was I was pretty obsessed back in the back in the day, and uh, pecs I believe was the tool that would you could you know kind of like that voting uh, example I gave. Uh, Visual Studio this add-in would actually write the test for you. And if it said, you know, hey, I want to add a vote and, you know, it, what it would do is it would say, I'm going to add in like the minute, the, you know, int dot min, um, I'm going to do like negative one, I'm going to do zero, I'm going to do one, I'm going to do, you know, some other value. And it, it would write all of those tests for you. Basically, every like sort of intrinsic edge case that exists in coding, it would automatically create the unit test for you. Um, I, I can't really tell if that is like sort of still exists. It says that it was integrated into uh, IntelliTest. Um, so I don't know if that still exists. I don't know. Like, what do, you, what do you guys think of the automated unit testing? And are there any tools around that that you use today? So I, I don't know. It's the last version of uh, Pex and Moles that I, that I saw was incompatible with the latest versions of Visual Studio. Um, that type of testing is called mutation testing. Uh, in the .NET and JavaScript uh, areas, I don't think I've really seen too much of that. I was I was pretty excited when uh, Pex and Moles came out, and then and then they just kind of just kind of fell to the wayside. Right, right. Uh, but in in like Ruby, they have um, I think it's Hide or maybe Jekyll uh, as a as a mutation library that will that will mutate your code. Okay. Uh, it basically like flips one input, or it might even change. One of them, I think, actually changes your code just a little bit and kind of does the reverse of pecs and moles where it changes your code <laughs> and sees if it affects the tests um, just to get to get a good a good coverage. And yeah. it'll it'll let you know, hey, this line apparently isn't tested because we changed it and nothing happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I, w- I really would like to see more of those kinds of tools. But um, so far, I haven't seen those in C Sharp yeah. and JavaScript outside of that one one instance, which doesn't. To me, uh, as far as I know, it's not still supported. Yeah, because I think even if it doesn't write a test for you, like it just it does. Doesn't it seem logical that like your IDE, like if you write a method and you can take in, you know, a couple values, 
that it would it would do some kind of analysis and say, uh, hey, buddy, you know, you're taking an int in. And if somebody passes in negative one, it, it will throw an exception. Like it seems like it, it seems like that should just be inherent functionality. And I'm, and I'm kind of surprised that that doesn't exist already. Like you should be able to do that basic sort of runtime analysis with a, with a couple different things and just give you a heads up that, hey, your code kind of sucks. Like, you know, if somebody doesn't put in the perfect value, it's going to crash. I see yeah. it's going to be the next VS Code uh, plugin. Uh, it'll just analyze your code and then and then give you a Giphy with a uh, with a meme ah, in it. Perfect. Memorama. Okay, I'm just thinking. There's, it seems like there there could be even you know further uh, you know a lot of innovation in this space. Just doing yeah, you know, with, analysis through automated testing. Yeah, with all the improvements in Visual Studio 2017 uh, with Resharper, I mean. I work until all the squiggles are gone from the the right hand side of my uh, editor window. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm always always looking to improve the code and and do whatever my editor tells me to do. It, which makes me kind of think, you know, th- there's a time where we can just get s- sucked down into testing everything and make sure that there's a hundred percent code coverage and, and and whatnot. But when is that too much? And when should we just kind of let some things? be user reported and let the users do the testing of our software. Yeah, that that's where I want to make sure that the testing that I'm doing is valuable. Uh, I, I was working uh, with a, a large credit card firm and uh, they had a mandate that all code had to have 80% test coverage. And I, I was coming in on, on a legacy application and, and trying to bring that up to speed and uh, went to my manager or the, the and said, you know, most of this code was written without testability in mind, uh, I can wrap it in, 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 and make it testable. Um, or I would have to modify the code. And he said, well, a lot of this is in production. We can't modify the code, but we need to get the coverage up. I said, okay, I can write tests around this. I can get the coverage up, but there'll be wholly meaningless tests. He said, well, we, we got to do what we got to do. So, um, you know, sometimes you got to bite that bullet just for the, the corporate bureaucracy, but, um, you know, when I'm working, I, I really want to make sure what I'm doing is valuable. I want to make sure that I'm testing the business requirements, not whether or not, um, you know, an int is an int or, or whatever the case may be. So, you know, I have like maybe a real life example where maybe just doing it for that sake is might have a good benefit of just having somebody go through the eyes of that legacy code. Um, I think a couple of days ago there was a, a Twitter had announced that. Uh, there's passwords being logged in plain text on their servers. They said nobody, they don't think anybody got them. But, you know, I, I would think if I were a Twitter engineer and I was just, you know, quote, backfilling unit tests for the sake of doing it, I might see a console.log password. And, and I might want to think twice about like, hey, why are we logging all these passwords to this this text file? Might that be a, you know, a good reason to do that just to, you know, sniff out stuff like that? That that might be a happy accident, uh, <laughs> but I'm not sure. You know, if we can do that without mandating that uh, we have to hit some threshold, um, then then I'd be all for it. I'm I'm all for the Boy Scout rule. You know, so each time you're in a file or each time you open some code, make the code a little bit better. If it doesn't have tests, see what tests you can write, and and maybe not write all of them, but write something. Um, but the kind of test that John was talking about was was literally call a method, do whatever you have to do to make it not blow up, and then move on to the next method. No assertions, no anything. Just it's it's ran as part of a unit test. Um, so he he probably wouldn't have been looking at the output uh, 
to the console. So if you're not asserting anything, is that even helping your coverage? Uh, it counts. It does count. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I did not know that. Well, I mean, it yeah, is executing. The, I mean, it's, it's executing, executing the code. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. The the tests run, and then every line that is used by the by the tests is what's counted as in the code coverage. So uh, you don't even have to assert, uh, which is why the it exists test work because there's there's actually no assertion there. You're just you know var a equals new class. Um, you could assert that a is not null if you wanted to, but you really don't have to. Um, <clears throat> and it'll it'll count it as as being covered. Okay. And then I, I wanted I did want to ask too like we we have a lot of you know new developers obviously every day entering uh, into our profession and I was just curious if that's if that's uh, you know pushing the percentage of people that are unit testing like in a positive direction or is it negative because it's sort of a losing battle right like we keep training people to to do unit testing but you know every two years if we if we if our you know trade doubles in size and all the new people are not doing unit testing then obviously. Uh, it becomes, uh, you know, a lower and lower percentage. So I don't, I don't know if you guys, you know, have any feel for that. Yeah, un- unfortunately, the companies, so so the the code schools and and that kind of thing, uh, they are probably generating the the better developers. I don't I don't think the colleges are really giving the developers the knowledge that that they need at this point. You know, uh, if you're going into something where you need to know big O notation, then maybe. But as far as just general programming, uh, you know, I mean, 90 percent of the stuff I'm making this up is a line of business applications. And you don't need big O notation to do crud. Uh, But what you do need to do is know for loops, if if statements, variable declarations, object oriented structure, you know, those kinds of things. And I don't think college is really teaching that. So unfortunately, the college individuals, I I think, are, are really behind the code school individuals. They're only teaching them what the companies tell them they want. And the companies generally don't care about testing. They care about someone who can write code fast. Yeah, so was... I, I, I do feel like we're, we're kind of falling behind on that one. And it, it kind of saddens me a little bit. Yeah, I was, I was working with a, a consultant group uh, locally here and, and was trying to introduce TDD to my team and, and was initially told that I could uh, have three days to, to train up the team then it dropped down to one day, then it dropped down to about an hour um, and really just kind of brushed the surface or, or maybe it was an afternoon, uh, but really just kind of brushed the surface. And during that that training, it was revealed that they, they had tried to put unit testing in the contract with their clients and they allowed their clients to veto that as a line item that they didn't <laughs> want to pay for it. Yeah, it costs too much to make sure the code's correct. You know, it's yeah, funny. So, so, yeah, well, I wanted to kind of finish what I was talking about, like in the beginning, right? So I was talking, to, I was kind of talking along the same lines, like, hey, I want to put this unit testing in. So on the next project, I actually, uh, I was a consultant after that, and I took a different approach. I did unit testing. And then afterward, I told the client, I said, hey, uh, this took me less time because I was big on um, using unit testing to actually save time. Um, I figured out how to make it so that I could develop my code faster. Uh, because I wasn't sort of going back and battling all of the the first features, you know, I had, a, you know, I had feature B and then it breaks feature A. Um, so I was actually able to save time. So I went back after the fact then, and I would tell them, hey, you know, by the way, this got done faster uh, thanks to unit testing. And now you have these, if anybody else works on this code base, it's a lot safer to work on this code base. And I actually never had any pushback on that. Yeah, it's, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Well, it wasn't right? even forgiveness though. It was really like, 
asking for to give them more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, 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 that's, that's, that's the way that I looked at it. I really don't think that I had any reason to ask for forgiveness. Like I said, I literally made the code faster and I actually have numerous examples of, of where I was able to do that. Like I built, uh, one of them was like a complex uh, calendar system for an airline. And I had to actually like rebuild some of these like base constructs, like, um, recurring events. And I need this to be like every third Saturday and like that type of thing. And whenever you're building a system like that, just, just like, just like my my other example where you're converting that string into that time like you can imagine um you know it's so much faster cuz your your cycle for writing your code validating the code works and then adding another feature is so much faster so i would i i could all you know in, in that's why i'm i'm so uh passionate about the actual developer test versus the the business test because i would use it as a tool to get my code done faster and my code would be better because of it yeah, that's that's been my experience as well. Um, been working on a on a on my current project with another developer, and we're similarly skilled. And um, I came on the project after he had already started and and built up a, a fairly significant code base. And so I started in, and and he had not been doing testing, so I started in on new features and and building out uh, additional functionality in in the system. And you know, he said what you've been able to accomplish in weeks would have taken me many months. I said, well, you know, really, this is just how I work. And I work quickly, but I work very consistently and safely by, by starting with the tests. And, and I don't have to always go back and regression test manually the entire system because I know I haven't broken anything along the way. If I have a failing test, I know that the last thing I did was what broke that test because I'm running the, the suite of tests the entire time. Yeah. And I, I have a, a similar type approach. Um, when I start a, a job at a new company, I don't, I don't even tell them about tests or anything like that. And then after a couple months, I tell them that, uh, I've only been working 40 hours a week and that, um, that that's how I, how I operate. And I just do TDD and, uh, they get kind of wide eyed because they thought I was doing 60 or 80 hours a week. Yeah. That's pretty dramatic. But the one, the one thing that I'm wondering though, is I, I've heard a few people specifically talk about unit testing is really hard when you're refactoring because you're moving classes around to new namespaces or you're moving methods between classes and now the tests no longer match up because there's nothing there where a class or a method used to be. So how, how do you handle refactoring and not doubling your work, having to move everything around twice with the original code and the unit test code? So that would, comes down to, oh, go ahead, John. Yeah, I would, I would point to uh, two items there. That first, they're they probably have tied their test too closely to the implementation, and they're not writing their tests in in a way that's testing the behavior of the system. So when you're refactoring like that, you're you're probably not wanting to change the behavior of the system. Um, but if you do find the need to to change the behavior, then I would start by modifying the tests. And then once you change the test to the new uh, expected behavior, then then you know what line is breaking. You know where the failure is. You can go in and address that a little bit more easily and a little a little more cleanly. Cool. And uh, so I noticed that your book, you know, it has five star. It's all five star reviews on uh, on Amazon, which is uh, you know, congratulations. That's pretty awesome. Um, is there anything else that you uh, that you wanted to cover that we may have missed? I mean, obviously, uh, you know, the book, like 90% of the book, but I mean, anything you want to mention on the show? Uh, well, we uh, we also, 
have a, a podcast on the Six Figure Developer, and okay. we we write a, a blog at sixfiguredev.com and uh, tweet from that account as well. Very cool. And we also run the stpete.net meetup in St. Petersburg, Florida. So if uh, you or any of your listeners ever find yourself down this way, we'd, we'd love to have you. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. So let's move on to the Azure pick of the week. What do you have, Carl? I have a bunch of Azure Cosmos DB query sheets, uh, query cheat sheets. Mm -hmm. And what's really cool about these is because Cosmos DB is multimodal, there is a cheat sheet for every mode. So you have your uh, uh, Mongo API, your Table API, your Gremlin Graph API, and your SQL API cheat sheets. So there's four cheat sheets in one. Uh, that you can shuffle out depending upon which mode that you're interacting it with. And of course, because it's always cool, is you can always on the fly switch between any one of those on the same uh, Cosmos database. Very cool, very cool. And then I have a, the dev tip of the week, um, which is around hiding.js.map files in Visual Studio Code. What made me think of this was uh, whenever you write a spec in JavaScript, you do this. Uh, a lot of people call them like .spec.js. Um, so you don't, you definitely don't want to hide those. Uh, but if you have something like TypeScript, you know, so you have a TS file, um, what you want to do is you want to hide the automatically generated JS files. So what's really cool is in VS Code, you can tell it that if there is a TS file that exists, um, and there's a, J, a corresponding JS file with the same name to hide that JS file. And what's cool about it is if you, let's say you deleted that TS file, then the JS file will all of a sudden appear out of nowhere, which is pretty cool because it actually is there, um, but it's hidden because you know it's it's just a, a generated file. Uh, so I have a link in the show notes to that. Uh, but basically, what you what you end up doing is you have a uh, an, a file exclusion in VS Code, and then you just have a where or a when parameter on there that says you know when dollar sign base name dot ts. So basically, when that file exists, then uh, hide that type of file. So you can go check that out. We'll have that in the show notes. And I don't know if I have cards here. I think they might be packed. Give me one second. There's a game that we play on this show, but we might have to skip it this week. Uh, oh, no, I see some in the bottom of the box here. So let me dig these out. I will shuffle them. And uh, normally I'd have you guys pick a number between one and four, but we all have almost extinguished every number. So I'm just going to pick one for you guys. So I'll just give you guys one question. You guys can each answer here. Um, <laughs> okay, this doesn't make any sense. This is talking about uh, your schoolmates. Uh, hold on. Oh, here we go. Would you rather leave a slime trail everywhere you walk like a snail or always leave a trail of smoke like an old car? <laughs> so Clayton and John, which one did you pick? Uh, I think I'd prefer to leave a, a slime trail. Yeah. Make, makes me feel like uh, like when I was a kid or, or is it pig pen from the peanuts? Yeah. Well, that would be like the smoke then. Well, but he was really, it was, it was smoke, but it was really just dirt. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Did you want to answer? No, no, I'll, I'll, I'll take a different one. <laughs> You're going to take a different one. Okay, here we go. Uh, would you rather have an extra hand where one of your feet is or have an extra eye where one of your hands is? Oh, I, I, as a developer, I'd, I'd have to go with an extra hand. <laughs> I mean, that could have a hand on the mouse and two on the keyboard. Wow. Actually, that would be way more efficient, wouldn't it? Yeah, but then you'd have to put your leg up on the desk. It or you put anyway. your mouse down by your foot. Oh, um, that actually be pretty even awesome. better. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'll, be, I'll take. 
I'll be leaving a trail of slime on the floor, though. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> meanwhile, that'll, that'll help the mouse glide. Yeah, meanwhile, he's there, you know, three hands. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll take monkey feet for three, Alex. Okay. Uh, Carl, would you rather eat a steak that has been left on a busy road for an hour or drink a glass of juice that has been slowly poured through the wig of a sweaty fat woman with dandruff? <laughs> I'm going to take the steak on a road. <laughs> These questions. I don't know what year that. Let me. What, what year did this come out here? These things. This is just ridiculous. Oh, originally it's from Zob Mondo Entertainment LLC. Originally copyright 1998. Fantastic. So, did you say ZomboCom? No, no. <laughs> you can do anything at ZomboCom. No, this is Zom. What? what Zom. Zob. Zob Mondo was the name. You can do a little bit of research on. Anyway, um, I think you guys kind of said where we can find you. Well, actually, where can uh, where can we, can we find you guys uh, individually? You guys on Twitter? Yes, uh, you can find me, John, on Twitter at Matsu Bonsai. Okay, and Clayton. And uh, yeah, mine is mine is pretty simple. It's Clayton Hunt underscore one hundred four on Twitter. Okay, man, the first hundred and three were taken, huh? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> that's and... actually that's actually a leftover from Hotmail. Oh, that's uh, back in the day, back in 1999. <laughs> that's awesome. And Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me at twitter.com slash ytechie. So guys, thank you so much for coming on here and talking about unit testing. This was uh, this was really awesome talking about you know something that, that I know has been around for a long time, but it, it was great catching up on like what the latest thinking and tools are. Great. Thanks so much. Yep, thank you.